If you're uh, new with us, we are working our way through uh, Luke's gospel verse by verse, and we have arrived here in uh, Luke chapter 7 in a a remarkable story set within a remarkable chapter. Uh, Let's pray today and ask for the Lord's help as we look at it together. Father, I pray that you would come today now and attend to our studies, open up the eyes of our hearts that we may behold wonderful things from your word. Lord Jesus, we pray you would stand forth from your word and captivate our hearts and minds that we may worship you and serve you passionately and gladly. Um, I pray that you would amaze us today um, by what we see in this text. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. So I was a health man. It's quite interesting that the uh, teacher was creative and and passionate. Um, Sometimes the the class was uh, entertaining, and many times it was quite creepy. Uh, we uh, reflected on various world religions, on different worldviews. We uh, visited cemeteries. We went to the morgue on more than one occasion. We read ghost stories. Uh, we studied the decomposition of bodies and a whole lot more. It was a very, very unique experience. But I didn't finish the class with a lot of answers <laughs> or with a lot of hope when it came to the subject of death and dying. And thankfully, the Bible gives us the deepest answers to these questions. And in Luke chapter 7, the text we're looking at today, we're taking up these two topics of death and dying. We meet a servant who is on, the, on, the, on death's doorstep, and we meet a son of a widow who has died. And these two stories cause us to reflect on our own mortality. Sooner or later, you and I will be in these positions. And Luke shows us that when it comes to death and dying, you need Jesus Christ. Now, some today try to sort of dismiss the subject of death, even say that death is somewhat cool as they watch shows like Six Feet Under or um, Dead Like Me or The Walking Dead. But most people that I know just simply don't like to talk about the subject at all, right? For a generation that likes to be in control, that likes to fix problems, this subject is often avoided. We have fixed so many things in society, right? But we cannot solve this particular problem. We might be able to delay death a little bit, but we can't defeat it. It comes to the average Joe and uh, all the way up to the pop icon of the day. We can sort of mask aging a little bit with makeup and maybe surgery and some pills, but we can't defeat death. We often rename it so that we can uh, sort of trivialize it and not reflect on it too deeply as we say that a person kicked the bucket. We may even joke about it in order to try to avoid it. Woody Allen said, it's not that I'm afraid to die, it's just I don't want to be there when it happens. And behind that quip is really a lurking fear of death. Vaughn Roberts, a well-known pastor in the UK, tells about doing the funeral of a friend of his, a 41-year-old successful banker. The day after everyone found out that his friend had terminal cancer, Pastor Roberts went to visit him. And his dying friend said, the irony is, just last week, I paid off my mortgage. In a very expensive house in a very expensive part of London. And at the funeral, a lot of his very successful uh, friends in business attended that funeral where Pastor Roberts addressed the audience. And at one point he said, I've got to ask you, do you have a philosophy of life that can cope with your death? Do you have a philosophy of life 
that can cope with your death. And the Christian can say humbly and gratefully, yes, because of Jesus Christ. Chapter 7, we're directed to the only one who has the power over sickness and death. And most see chapter 7 as one big unit of thought, uh, kind of bleeding into chapter 8, verse 3 as well. And you might hang over this section, this particular question that appears at the end of chapter 7, who is this? Who is this Jesus? And Luke is unfolding for us answers to that question, or the question that is raised in the passage we'll look at next week, hopefully, John the Baptist, as, as his messengers come and say, are you the one who is to come? That's the question. Who is this Jesus? Is he the one who is to come? And so through a series of encounters with Jesus, we, meet, we see just a beautiful portrait of our Savior. We see that Jesus really is for the whole world. That the, the people who benefit from Jesus, from his salvation and from his, his blessing, uh, it, it doesn't depend on your social status or your rank or your race or your works. No one this morning should, shouldn't, should think, well, this Jesus isn't for me. He is for you. And what we see in chapter 7 is that faith actually appears in very surprising places. The good news is for a Gentile soldier, for a grieving widow, for a doubting prophet, for a sinful woman, for a demon-possessed woman. The good news is for those who are out of their depth, like this soldier we're going to look at in a second. The good news is for those who are confronted by death, like this grieving widow. The good news is for those who are troubled by doubt, like John. And the good news is for those who are stricken with guilt, like the lady in, at the end of chapter 7. Who is this Jesus? For the next three weeks, this week and the next two, we're going to look at what Luke says about that. And today we see that the answer is Jesus is the Lord over sickness and death. Next week, Jesus is the promised one. And the week after on Easter, he is the one who forgives sinners. So let's take up the first one here in uh, these two stories uh, that was just read for us. The two stories are tied together in a variety of ways, one of which is they both emphasize the authority of Jesus' word, his authority to heal. We also see that someone loves another person. There's a beloved person in trouble. In, in the first story, it's, it's the servant of a soldier. In the second, it's the son of a, of a widow. They're in the grip of death. One has already died. There's a crowd observing in both of these stories, and there is a miraculous healing. And so let's take them one at a time. The healing of the centurion servant in the first 10 verses. Jesus is amazed by the faith of this soldier. There's actually more told about the soldier than about Jesus in the story. Uh, and I think the point that Luke is driving home is, is where the story ends, and that is that this soldier is a model of real faith. And again, faith is appearing in surprising places. It's the Gentile soldier and not the Israelite that is the, the model of faith. And what is it that makes this uh, soldier's faith so exemplary? Two things I'll point out. First of all, he approaches Jesus with humility. First seven verses, we see sort of the context for this uh, encounter. Jesus had just finished the sayings that we looked at for the uh, previous four weeks, the servant on the plain, and he entered Capernaum. And a, a centurion had a servant who was sick at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. So 
I take this to be sort of a mark of compassion that the centurion had for his servant. The centurion is one who had charge over a hundred people. Uh, He is uh, an influential person there in the community. Next to this little, uh, this sea is, uh, he's a big fish in a small pond, you might think. Um, He was uh, sort of a a middle ranking officer, but he worked for the Romans and that made him uh, influential. And in a particularly uh, poor area, of, of uh, that region, he was influential and even gracious as the story goes on that he sent some people to go uh, interact with Jesus on his behalf and they communicate to Jesus that he had built their synagogue. You go today to uh, Capernaum, you can visit what is left of a, a fourth century synagogue. It's built on the top of uh, uh, the foundation of the first century synagogue that Jesus would have taught in and that this centurion uh, presumably would have uh, contributed to. So I don't take that he built it, meaning that he physically built it, though he might have, but that he funded this project. So he's not uh, hostile toward the Jews. He, he seems to be a man with a big heart, a very compassionate guy, very generous guy, uh, and an upstanding guy in the community. However, he is out of his depth with this problem. The servant that he loves is sick, and he doesn't know what to do. And it's often when you and I find ourselves out of our depth, we who know how to fix problems, we who like to be in control, that we find ourselves desperate for Jesus to do something. And it's often in those moments of desperation where we've lost, we don't know what to do, that we experience Jesus' grace in powerful ways. And that's what happens in the life of this particular soldier. We're not told his nationality. He's, He's likely not an Italian. He's probably a Syrian a neighboring country, and he has heard about Jesus as the fame of Jesus has spread, and so he uh, calls on uh, some some, uh, elders of the Jews to go engage with Jesus and plead uh, with him, verse 4, earnestly saying, uh, they say to Jesus, pleading with him earnestly, he is worthy uh, to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation. He is the one who built our synagogue. So the, this uh, delegation of messengers come to Jesus and basically say, you should heal this man's servant because he is a worthy guy. He deserves your healing touch. He deserves you to intervene in this particular problem. They think he's very worthy. Interestingly, what does the guy say in verse 6? Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy. <laughs> I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Here we see a humility that characterizes true faith. True faith. The centurion no doubt had a lot of things that you could say good about him. I mean, we, we believe in common grace. So we believe that unbelievers can do good things in the world. However, even the most worthy of individuals next to Jesus Christ are totally unworthy. You and I are totally unworthy unworthy. Jesus knows everything about us. Think about it. If everyone in this room knew everything about you and what you thought and the motives of your heart, we would run away from each other, wouldn't we? Right? Jesus knows it all. This guy understands that. And real faith recognizes Jesus knows everything about me. And if that is true, then I am unworthy. The Jews say he's worthy. The guy says, I'm not worthy. And here you have two different ways to approach Jesus, on merit or on mercy. On merit, I'm worthy, you should do something for me. Or on mercy, 
I am not worthy. And anything you do for me is a gift. And most of the world thinks, if they think about the gospel or religion in any sense, that it's all merit-based because so much of our our lives are merit-based. You get a performance review at work and it's good, you get promoted. You get the grades and do well on the test, you get accepted into the school. You make the shots, you win the game. You have the shiny resume, you get the job. And a lot of people think that's how the gospel works. Most people assume that there's somewhere between Mother Teresa and a serial killer. And if I can just sort of be up in the middle somewhere, then, then shouldn't Jesus do uh, this thing for me? And this story is showing you, here's why this guy's a model of faith. He recognizes it's by mercy, it's by grace, that he is unworthy. Jesus sees us all the way through, and the soldier knows that. And you see this theme all the way through Luke, like in chapter 18, where the religious person, the Pharisee, prays to God and says, I'm glad I'm not like this guy. And that guy, the tax collector, can't even look up to heaven, and he says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that's the guy that got it right. That's how we come to Jesus, with humility. Secondly, verses 8 to 10, he believes in Jesus' authority. For I too, he says, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does that. Some of us wish our kids could do that sort of thing, right, the, the latter part there. Um, so a soldier knows authority. That's one thing I've always admired about soldiers. We have a lot of folks in this church who have that kind of background, or maybe in the military right now. I had a friend who used to pastor in a military town, and it was amazing how, how he could get volunteers because he was the leader. He would say, I need volunteers at 6 a.m. Yes, sir. Uh, 25 of them would, would just show up. And the guy says, I understand that world. I've got 100 people under me, and they say, your desire, my command, sir. What if, and he says to Jesus, when, um, and he, my servant do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, meaning that he, he recognizes in this man, he understands that Jesus has all authority. And if a soldier can, can occupy this tiny little bit of authority within the world, the one that he is addressing has all authority in heaven and on earth. That if he could just say the word, as the soldier says, it would be done. He recognizes the, the, the divine authority of Jesus. This is how the, word, the, the world was created, by his word. I love how Psalm says, Psalm 107, they cried to the Lord and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and he healed them. What is attributed to Yahweh is being attributed here to Jesus Christ in this story as the soldier says, all you got to do is say the word. Notice he doesn't say, you just need to come to my house and lay hands on him and pray to the Father. No, he says, Jesus, you just got to speak. That is really remarkable. You recognize Jesus doesn't have to be physically present to heal you. When we pray for Jesus to heal people, don't think that because you can't physically see him, he's unable to heal you. The guy doesn't say, hey, you got to come to my house. He just says, you just got to say the word. And the, the, the healing, after Jesus says, I haven't seen faith like this before, verse 10, is almost like an afterthought. They go to the house, and he's, he's healed. Like, the story's really not about the person being healed. In this story, it's about 
this servant's faith, who comes to Jesus with humility, who recognizes his divine authority. He is a model of faith, and Jesus heals this servant effortlessly. That's a remarkable thing about the healings of Jesus, is how effortless it is. It's like a Stephen Curry jump shot. You just watch it and say, wow, that's just beautiful, isn't it? Or, or Kent Bass, one of our pastors, watch him hit a four iron. It is so smooth. Like atheists believe when they see him hit, hit a golf shot. It's like, how does that happen? Right? Jesus is so effortless because he has all authority. He has all authority. And so you have here a Gentile, a centurion, a soldier, coming to faith, which is the first of kind of a, um, uh, what you, you know, a, a group of, uh, a domino effect of other Gentiles, a, a chain of centurions coming to faith. In chapter 23 at the cross, there's a centurion. Truly, he is the son of God. And then Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, Luke's second book, comes to faith. It's a preview of the Gentiles pouring in to the kingdom of God. And the question is, as we leave this story, move to the next, is do you believe in this Jesus? Do you approach him with that kind of humility? Do you, or presume upon his grace instead? Do you believe he has this kind of authority? Some people have a hard time just with the idea of faith itself, and, you know, we're going to see a guy who doubted next week. And many think, you know, if I'm a rational person, I can't be a person of faith. And some think these operate in completely different realms. And the, uh, the so-called new atheists often talk about this, that they, they mischaracterize Christian faith, calling it blind trust. But that's, that's not Christian faith. We believe there is sufficient evidence for faith, right? It still takes faith, but it's not a leap into the dark. It's a leap into the light. This centurion had sufficient evidence in the work of Jesus to believe in him. And that's what we do. We have every good reason to believe. Like we, we exercise faith all the time. When I see the little thing pops up on my phone, it says your, your plane is leaving in an hour. I trust there's a plane over there. <laughs> Sometimes I trust that'll actually arrive on time. Um, like we're, we operate in, in realm of faith based on sufficient evidence. And we have every reason today, church, to trust in this Christ. And here is also another reason to be encouraged, and that is, as I mentioned already, this faith comes in a surprising place. It doesn't come from the religious establishment. It comes from a Roman, uh, or perhaps a Syrian uh, uh, soldier working for the Romans. And that's encouraging, because you never know why, where you might find Jesus' grace shining, in whom you might find his grace shining. Pastor Ralph Davis tells a story about Eric Liddell, the famous uh, gold medalist who uh, was in an inn in China during the Japanese occupation. And orders were given that everyone there have their luggage uh, looked through. And the Japanese soldier that was looking through his luggage spotted a New Testament. And he says, Bible? You Christian? And he extended his hand as extending it to a brother. And shook his hand turned on a heel, and walked away. And David says, who in their right mind would expect to run into a Christian believer in a Japanese imperial army? Yet there he was, faith in unexpected places. Luke is showing us, hey, grace is surprising. It's prodigals 
It's tax collectors, it's prostitutes, and it's Gentile soldiers coming to faith in Jesus Christ. You never know who might believe. We don't know where the next church planter is, where the great Christian leader is. Where are they now? They might be breaking bad right now. But they may be breaking down the gospel next year because Jesus Christ does this sort of thing, doesn't he? He's done it with us. Like, what in the world am I doing as a pastor? I just shake my head all the time. It's a wonder of grace. So let's, let's spread the gospel far and wide, right? All right, secondly, we see the story of Jesus raising the widow's son. We traveled to Nain, which was uh, 25 miles from Capernaum. Only about 200 people lived there, so we go from this influential soldier to a poor widow. She represents Jesus' mission that the good news will be preached to the poor. And this story, like the previous story, stresses the adequacy and authority of Jesus' word. Verses 11 and 12, what's happening here is we're, we're entering a funeral procession. And that had to be some sight. The procession was coming out to the town gate. And you get the whole vibe that this is an especially sad funeral. Even if we know people who are faithful Christians, even those funerals are sad. Right? This one was especially sad because this was not only the beloved son of this lady, but she would have also been, he would have also been her means of support, right? This is no, no, they have no social security, no retirement accounts, no pension, no life insurance. As one writer says, in one sense, we might say, uh, uh, though her, 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 her life uh, had ended, though her existence continued. It was so important and precious to have her son. And in this moment, Jesus, verse 13, enters into her sadness. This is so like our Lord. He enters into the most agonizing day of her life. You think about it, Jesus and his, his entourage could have just stepped aside, kind of how we do when we see a funeral procession going by. Can you imagine getting out, stopping all the cars, and going to touch the person who's dead and telling that person to get up. You would not forget that funeral. <laughs> Jesus stops the funeral procession and he tells this young man, I say to you, arise. Now, this miracle happens without any first expression of faith. Jesus just does it because that too is the way of our Savior. Nobody asked Jesus to do this. <laughs> he just does it. It's not like the centurion who requested Jesus' help. And Jesus blesses us immensely all the time when we don't even ask him to. If all of our blessing was only because we prayed, we would be very, probably not blessed very much. <laughs> but thanks be to God, Jesus' grace is so big. He does things when we don't even ask him to do it. He enters into her pain into her agony. Why is it that he enters into her agony? Why does he do this without even being asked to do it? Notice what the text says. He had compassion on her. Jesus did not only have all the authority, but he's filled with compassion. If he just had the authority but no compassion, we would tremble today. But he has the authority and the compassion Luke uses the word that you see pop up in the Gospels a lot to, in the Greek, is the, the deepest word he, you, one could use. It's like the insides of a person. 
His heart goes out to her. He feels deeply for her. This is like Jesus weeping over Lazarus. What does this, why is this significant for us? This is why it's significant. Because you and I will experience a lot of dark days in this life. And Jesus shines in the shadows. You may come in with pain so deep even today that you don't even want to talk about it. So wounded by the trauma. The trauma's, trauma's exhausted you, actually. And you come into a religious service and you just feel, you feel um, unlike everybody else. You're not like, unlike everybody else. All of us need the healing touch of Jesus Christ. And there is not a wound that I have that he doesn't know about and that he cannot heal. He knows all the wounds and he can heal them all. Jesus' heart goes out to sufferers. In every pain that rends the heart, the man of sorrows has a part. And he goes out to this widow, tiny little town. She's lost her son. He stops the funeral and says, hey, hey, pal, get up. <laughs> and then he hands the lady her son, or gives him to her son. He, in verse 13, he says, do not weep, which as a total side note, if you're at a funeral, that's not what you say to somebody. <laughs> Maybe that's not a side note. I think it's an important point. Like we, 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 don't, we don't make light of grief, and we know people grieve in different ways. And if you're crying, cry, and we're to cry with you, right? To weep with those who weep. Jesus says this because he anticipates doing something. <laughs> if I were to say that, I'm not saying that anticipating I'm going to raise the person from, from the dead. But Jesus knows that. That's about to happen. And Luke is right to call him Lord in verse 13. So Jesus touches this dead man's uh, beer, the thing the casket sat upon, the stretcher, or the, or the corpse was, was laid upon. And he raises this guy to life. Notice how it says that the man sat up and then he spoke. That's a remarkable thing. A dead man talking. Can you imagine being at a funeral witnessing something like this? <laughs> He's totally healed, it seems. Now, Luke doesn't tell us what inquiring minds want to know. Like, what did he say? <laughs> I would love to know that. <laughs> Uh, who are these people? Do I have to do that again? Uh, Jesus says, gives him back to his mother, another display of compassion. There are two other events like this where Jesus raises someone to life. We see it in Jairus' daughter, which we'll look at soon, and we, we see it in the story of Lazarus. And here is the point I think Luke is making. Even death is in the reach of Jesus' power. Death doesn't put you out of the reach of Jesus. It doesn't put you out of the reach of Jesus' power. Paul says it can't even separate you from his love. And this miracle is a preview of what is to come for all of us. As 1 Thessalonians says in chapter 4, verse 16, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and the sound of the trumpet of God. And listen, and the dead in Christ will rise first. You hear that? Dead in Christ. Death doesn't keep you from being in Christ. You are united, believer, in Christ when you die. And so nothing can ever separate you from him and from his love. 
Though you're dead, you're still united to him. And this story shows us what else will happen. Not only will we rise, but we will be reunited with believers. As one commentator said it well, what Jesus did here for the widowed mother and son, soon he will do one day for all the faithful in a perfect and final form. He will bring full comfort. He will raise all his people in incorruptibility and will reunite us in the heavenly realm with our loved ones who have died in him. Now you may wonder, why doesn't Jesus just raise a bunch of people right now? For the same reason he didn't do it in the Gospels. I already mentioned only the three cases where this happens. You don't see this happening over and over and over again. Why doesn't he raise up a bunch of people? Because it's not time yet. But soon it will be. Soon it will be, friends. Soon we will hear, get up, John. Arise. Get up, Jane. Arise. It's resurrection morning. We are resurrection people. Not just on Easter, (laughs) but on every day of our human existence. He will say to us, get up. This doesn't mean we still don't grieve over the death of loved ones. You have double grief if you really don't know the person's spiritual condition. As you just simply trust in the character of God in those moments, cling to Him. But if you have friends, family who have who are believers, they die in Christ, we grieve, but, but not as those who have no hope. They're still united to Christ. What is the response of the people in Nain? Well, verse 17, or 16, fear sees them all. They've never seen anything like this. They're just gripped with awe. And then it says that they glorify God. How could they not? They're, they're praising God. And then they say, interestingly, a great prophet has risen among us. Indeed, Jesus was a great prophet, but he was more than a prophet, wasn't he? And they're probably thinking about the prophets Elijah and Elisha. If you're familiar with the Old Testament stories of Elijah and Elisha, in 1 Kings 17, Elijah raises the son of a woman, and Elisha also does that in 2 Kings chapter 4. In fact, the story of Elisha raising the the son uh, happens just a few miles from Nain, And so uh, the people there, no doubt, in that Jewish setting would have been very, very familiar with that particular story that just happened over the hill. And now Jesus comes on the scene, and you notice in contrast to Elijah and Elisha, Jesus doesn't pray. Elijah and Elisha pray and ask God to, to raise these sons to life. But Jesus doesn't speak to a higher power because he is the higher power. He simply says the word, arise, and life is given because he is the divine son of God with all authority in heaven and on earth. And they declare, in addition, God has visited us. I think they're probably drawing on that great imagery throughout the Old Testament with this word visited where God intervenes at particular times in human history For example, in Genesis 21, Sarah cannot have a child. She's barren, and it says the Lord visited her, and she conceived. Israel was in a famine, Ruth chapter 1, until it says the Lord visited his people and gave them bread. We already looked at this word with the the song of Zechariah in Luke chapter 1, and later we see that James says that true religion, interestingly, involves visiting orphans and widows in their affliction. It's a word that, from which we get the word pastor. It means to intervene, to be present. And they say, 
knowing their Old Testament, I think that God is a father to the fatherless and a protector of widows. This is what our God's like. He visits orphans and widows in their affliction. Jesus has visited this widow in her great affliction. And the people say, God just showed up. God has visited us. He is putting on display the character of our God, and therefore word spreads about Jesus. This is a, two remarkable stories. Who is this Jesus? He is the Lord over death. He is the Lord over disease. And he is the compassionate one who enters into our grief, in, enter into our agony. And these miracles are previews of things to come. One day, church, there will be no more sickness and no more pain. One day, there will be no more funerals. There will be no more weeping. We will be raised with an incorruptible body, an immortal body, fitted for a new creation. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it well when he says, we only receive a very small part of salvation in this life. The best is yet to come for us. And these stories are a preview of that reality that this is, going to, this is going to happen. Jesus will bring us up out of the grave, bring us into this new creation, and he alone is the answer to death and dying. He's won the battle over our great enemies of Satan, sin, death, and the grave. And if you're not a Christian, we don't point you to ourselves, we point you to Jesus Christ. There is sufficient evidence to believe in him, to embrace him as your savior. Don't think that you're out of reach. Don't think that it's not for you. This whole chapter is saying, oh, it's for you. Grace can be found in surprising places, and maybe today you would give your life to Jesus Christ and believe in him. And if you're a Christian today, we have reason to celebrate, don't we? We got a lot of things to grieve in this life, but Jesus has solved our greatest problem. And we view all of our little problems, and a lot of the big one has been taken away. Praise be to God for that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord Jesus, we don't have vocabulary to articulate how awesome you are. Thank you for your compassion. Thank you that you who have all glory and power would be mindful of a little widow in a tiny town. And you're mindful of us today. Help us to never doubt that. Give us faith to believe, to trust you when times are tough. Give us the humility of this soldier and the trust in your authoritative word. Give hope today to all who are grieving through this passage. Strengthen us even now as we take the Lord's Supper. In Christ's name we pray, amen.